Tonight, we are diving into the crossroads of conflict. The crossroads of conflict. There are few things like conflict. You know, some of us experience conflict almost every single day in some form or fashion. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you literally had some drama before you came in here tonight? Right? Oh, we have hands. I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> some of us, conflict has shaped our entire life in so many varying ways. But I'm sure none of you deal with conflict, right? <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm sure none of you have ever had any conflict with your parents with a brother or a sister, a teacher, definitely not a boss, right? Or maybe you have employees and you're the boss. You've never had any conflict with any of your employees, right? Some of you, in fact, probably all of you have perfect friendships and there's never drama or conflict of any kind with your friends. How many of you are in a dating relationship with zero conflict? Never ever, right? Some of you married people, you've lived this long in your marriage and it's just been zero conflict, right? What about those in-laws? Right? None of us have ever had any conflict uh, when someone waves that one finger wave while we're driving, you know? Okay, just for a, a second, like, I'm only mentioning relational conflict. There's way many more types, much else things. There, there's a lot more conflict than just relational conflict. There's internal conflict, and I don't even want to make a joke about this. Like Some of us deal with such severe mental disorders and illnesses that affect us internally. It's almost like we are waging war within ourselves in a battle that seems to never end. Some of us deal with conflict and technology. Mine primarily is when my older parents call me and they're like, I hit the wrong button on my phone, right? And they, they have constant conflict with their technology and so I have to walk them through. Does anybody have to do that with like grandparents or parents or anything like that? Or am I the only one who fields those phone calls <laughs> way too often, right? We have conflict with our natural created order of things, like the weather. Some of us even have conflict with God himself. We've witnessed and experienced conflict everywhere. Turn on the TV and you'll see presidential candidates having conflict with each other. We have seen and studied world wars. People have abused power. We've seen natural disasters, disease, I even read this morning that countries are not accepting certain cruise ships because of the coronavirus. And they're stuck at sea. Like, I never would have imagined that there's a conflict between a cruise ship and a port, right? It's everywhere. Conflict is inevitable because of sin. Sin has influenced everything. 
It's pervasive. It's just, it's just in. It's oozing through all of life, the created order and you and I and everyone around us. It's the result of our first mom and dad rebelling against God the Father. Sin, we call it the fall. It's born into us. And you don't have to teach tiny humans like to have conflict. You don't have to model it for them. That picture, you can put that picture back up of our family. Our, our little baby, his name is Graham. And just like two months ago, you know, he's walking around doing his thing. And he, anytime the fridge gets open, he would just like, and he would run to the fridge and just like impale his body. And he would step up into it. And he's like touching the cheese with his chest and like, Where's the milk? You know, he's just in the fridge, and we're just like, no, you can't do that. And, like, we'll bring him out. And about two months ago, he would just like, okay, where do I go now, you know? And I looked at my wife one day, and I was like, there's going to be a moment when he does not like that, that we told him no, right? Because we, we have two older kids, like, we know this routine, and sure enough, a few weeks ago, he beelines it for the fridge, and he's just like, ha, 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 I'm in it, you know. And I'm just like, Graham, no, no. And he's just like, ah! I'm like, I just don't want you in the fridge. Like, and it pro so my wife probably shouldn't model that every time she opens the fridge. Right? Ah! You know, like, no, she doesn't do that. Some of you are like, wow, she has got issues. Like, no, she does not do that. It's in my son, my one-year-old child, to just revolt. It's born into us. So the question is, what does God's word have to say or does it say anything about this ever present reality that some of us experience almost on a daily basis, conflict. I would, I would imagine that there are some of you here tonight that you can't even understand life without conflict because it has been so molded and shaped into who you are. So what does God's word have to say how can we gain a Christ-like wisdom in conflict? So for that, I want you to grab your Bibles or open your app or whatever and turn to the New Testament book of James. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, James, just keep going. Okay? New Testament book of James. To give you a little context while you're turning there, the author of this book, this letter, is James. Big plot twist there. He is, or was, the brother of Jesus, okay? And we know from the gospel accounts that James, the brother of Jesus, actually did not believe in Jesus while Jesus was on his mission in his three years of efforts. In fact, there's recorded accounts of him challenging Jesus' mission. 
Like, no, I don't believe. I don't want that, right? Like, no one wants their sibling to be the Messiah. Can you imagine that statement? Like, Mary's like, James, can't you just be a little bit more like Jesus? Like, he's perfect. Like, how am I? You know, so that's what he grew up with. And to hear that your brother is this, right? Like, how do you interpret that? But there's something undeniable when you see your brother murdered and put to death and then a few days later stand before you. Alive. James would become one of the prominent leaders in the Jerusalem church. Even the apostle Paul referred to him as a pillar of the church in the first century. So this letter, this book, was written to new Christians, some of them having a heavy Jewish background in the first century A.D. It's one of my favorite books of all of Scripture. It's remarkable in its practicality and profoundly challenging in that our faith in Jesus actually really looks like something. It's not just an idea. It has action to it. And all throughout this book, he shepherds through trials and how we should use our speech and showing favoritism and gaining wisdom. And he spends almost a whole chapter on conflict. Now, we're going to start at the end of chapter 3, verse 16. You guys ready? All right, here we go. It says, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above, so not from us, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Verse 18. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I love that phrase in verse 18, the fruit of righteousness. This idea of righteousness is literally to stand before God made right. And you and I by ourselves cannot do that. It's only through Jesus. And so it's literally saying the fruit of being in Christ is what? Peace. The original language, Greek, actually has some deeper understanding on what this word peace is. It literally equates to this natural tranquility. It's uh, exception from rage and the, the bent towards war or conflict. It has notes of like harmony attached to it. How many of you like, constantly live with people like that? challenging. But I love the book of James because he doesn't just drop a truth like this as an idea. He is about to get going, all right? So verse 1 of chapter 4, he moves from this, hey, if you're in Christ, like this would be some peace. Let me talk about that for a second. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? He immediately transitions 
Like the opposite of peace. Conflict. Where does all that come from? Keep reading. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So, this is an easy note-taking right here. You know what causes conflict? It's you. It's you. That's it. Good night. Thanks for coming. See you guys later. You're all terrible. Right? No, like, <laughs> James is revealing something deep, and he is going to take us somewhere amazing. So there's kind of three movements that I want to go through tonight, and the first comes from that. Okay? Conflict is revealed by our sin. It comes from you and I, our. You've got to own that word, our, my. If you're taking notes, I pr don't even write the word our. Write my. Conflict comes from my sin. It's not all this exterior stuff. It's just your deep-rooted issues. It's, it's your pride. It's your passions, your desires for pleasure, your expectations. I've learned that in certain contexts, texts, XTS is tough to say. Words are hard. You can kind of like fake it till you make it. Like, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to let my pride come out. Like, hey, everybody, friends, you know. But there's a place that I've seen that it just, it's there. It's like, cut me open. It's always, it's marriage. She, my wife sees the worst of me. We were back from our honeymoon 13 and a half years ago. And we were in our house, you know, we didn't live together beforehand, so this was like a new experience. And we were in the kitchen, and we moved to like doing laundry together, and we're sitting there like folding and talking, and I'm just like, hey, you know you're folding that towel wrong, right? No, it's, it, you're not doing it right. There's a right way to fold a towel. Let me show you. It's like this, right? This, you're, you know, you're lit. That's, stop folding it like that, right? I could give a whole sermon on the baggage that we bring into marriage. I didn't even know that that was an issue in me. To like let my pride scream out to my wife after our honeymoon to say, what's wrong with you? You can't fold a towel, Right? Things went great after that. It was just like the next few hours were just peachy, you know, and it just revealed more sin. But I can say with zero confidence that everything's been perfect since then. In fact, it's quite the opposite. My wife and I have figured out entirely new ways to let our pride show that we never knew existed 10 years ago. It's just, it's in us. 
It reveals our sin, all this conflict. So James is going to force a perspective by revealing this truth to us. Do, do I, do we find deep, abiding, life-giving joy in me or in God? Which do I find it in? Is it what I want or is it what he wants for me? Because there's this war for the rulership of our hearts and our sin wants to control us and rebel against God. Like our sin is standing at the open fridge just ah! against anything that God is trying to shepherd us in. We're broken people. Look how James continues. He says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. In our sin, we live in this relentless circle of self-destruction. When I was in high school, I witnessed conflict in a way that I had never expected to, and that was to see members of my church where I grew up stand up and curse the pastor and see to his firing. And I walked away from church for almost about three years. I was never denying God, but that conflict showed me that I didn't want anything to do with the people of God. And so for years, I lived with verse 2 and 3 as my subconscious banner. And I just did whatever I want, and the only thing that I saw was a pattern of self-destruction. Because I said, I want this. I want this now. I want this. And none of it is life-giving. None of it brings joy. None of it is full of any sort of peace. I both wanted to fulfill my personal, albeit sinful, desires and essentially to use God like a cosmic vending machine. Right? I'm going to do whatever I want, but God, make sure that you're still there and I can you know, look to you whenever I need to. Here's what God has to think about that. Look at verse 4. Adulterers. It's a strong word, right? Adulterers and adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world, what? makes himself or herself an enemy of God? Or you, do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? James makes some amazing points here. Conflict is rooted in our pride. 
which is rooted in our spiritual adultery. Do you know what adultery is? It's when we give the love to one that we have promised for another. So conflict is rooted in our pride, which is rooted in our spiritual adultery, which is equal to worldliness. This is not a fun description of worldliness. The understanding in this text is that this is anti-God. Whatever the world desires, it's opposite of what God desires. Whatever God wants, the world wants the opposite. It's anti-God. Huge, strong language here from James. But before we move on, I think that it's actually helpful to sit in the weight of this and reflect. And I want to do that by asking some self-reflective questions. Okay, here's the first one. Are you a person that primarily thinks about yourself more than others? Let's say that I had the ability to take a poll with everyone that has a relationship with you. And they had to answer 100% honestly. And I just asked them, hey, does so-and-so, do they like primarily think of you more than they think of themselves? Or just others? Or do they primarily think of themselves in the way that they act, they live, and all the things? Are you a person of peace? Or are you a person of conflict? Peaceful people sow, they farm, which is a strange, they sow love, unity, harmony, right? There is a content within them. People of conflict sow strife, tension. They're combative. There are markers of a person of conflict. Drama typically surrounds them. It follows them wherever they move to in relationships. They demonstrate patterns of relational brokenness. And worse and scarily, sometimes we even wear conflict as a badge of honor. Do you know how many people I meet? I'm like, hey, how's it going? Terrible! Life is awful. I didn't get sleep last night, and like, oh, my friends all hate me, and like, there's, I'm so overwhelmed. Like, things are terrible. Hi, how are you? I'm just like, what? What is? Like, you need a hug right now. But there is a, a culture to wearing the expressions of conflict as a badge of honor. Like, look what I am enduring. That is not Christ-like. In fact, it's dangerous. Boasting in conflict is pride. And we know what pride is from just reading it. It's, it's equal to worldliness. It's anti-God. It separates you from him. Another question. Are you a person? This, is gonna, this one's going to sting, guys. 
Are you a person of submission or rebellion? Very few of us like to be told what to do. I learned that when I told my wife she was folding the towels wrong. But same question. If I were to ask everyone that knows you, are they like, do they just like joyfully submit? Like, oh, yes. Or is there like a rebelliousness to them? Rebellion is intertwined in our DNA because of sin. Last self-reflective question. Are you, this is going to take a turn. Some of you think it's another like, are you a prideful person about how you're not like these things? Are you prideful that you are a person of humility? That you are submissive? That you are peaceful? And you take great honor in that, right? Oh, look how, I'm not like those things. It's just another form of pride. I could go on and on with more questions. There's a part in in the end of verse five that is really beautiful. It says, jump back to, to verse five. The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. It's this idea that like God is jealous. Like he's a jealous God, which is a very strange concept. I even watched an interview with Oprah Winfrey, and she declared in her 20s that when she began to hear this idea that God was a jealous God, that she rejected organized religion, all the things, and walked away from the idea of this God of the Bible because of that one idea. Here's what she may not have understood. God is jealous over the spirit that he gave us. We're made in his image. Okay, so he is jealous over that. He, in fact, will not tolerate any competition for his affection. If we are in Christ, we are bought with a price, and we are adopted. We are co-heirs with Jesus. So it is totally appropriate that he's like, no, 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 that, you're mine in all the right ways. Now, it makes sense after reading these verses, like, adulterers, like, ah, oh, how dare you? For, it, it, to me, it would make sense for the next verse to just be like, And you're all just going to die. I'm going to kill you, wipe you off the face of the planet like you're terrible people. Look at verse 6. But he, that's a a good but. Don't be weird about that. That is grammatically a great word. But he gives what? Condemnation, hatred, vengeance, more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, he said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here's my second point. 
You know what conflict does? It reveals our sin, but it points to Jesus. It just points straight to the one who is offered grace. We are not in this battle by ourselves. Jesus walked and lived on this earth with us as one of us. And he faced the same seductive temptations as you and I do. He knows how deep the struggle is. And his grace is not just the grace of the past, but it is a grace for today, tonight, tomorrow. It is without end. That's why the grace that is mentioned here is so sweet. One theologian puts it this, puts it this way. Listen. What comfort there is in this verse. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respects of our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we put self first, we cannot forfeit our salvation. For there is always what? More grace. No matter what we do to him, he is never beaten. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives what? More grace. Grace can sometimes be overwhelming. In fact, there was a time that I pushed grace away. I didn't understand it, couldn't understand it. Definitely didn't deserve it. But I learned that I didn't need to really understand it. I was free to accept it. Because that's literally the point of grace. Because as Christians, we have a new king on the throne of our, our hearts. It's no longer this selfish pride, even though we still have to fight it every single day we get up. It's Jesus. He is the king on the throne of our hearts. And James is just going to push further to help us. Look at verse 7. He, he's challenging us, right? He's saying, no, there's more grace. Therefore... Someone may have told you this, but one of my friends way back in the day, whenever you see a therefore, you need to ask what it's there for, right? Because it's connecting to the right before this. There is grace! Therefore, right? I love James. He doesn't just present ideas. He actually gives a ton of meat and understanding to them. Submit to God. Right back to that question, are we a submissive person or are we a rebellious person? But when we understand who he is and his goodness for us, it becomes very easy to submit. Submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I'm, these next few verses, it's actually kind of helpful to think of them in opposite terms. James is not telling us, submit to yourself, keep trying. No, submit to God. Look in verse eight, draw near 
to yourself and whatever you want all the time. No, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Isn't that refreshing? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. When was the last time that you were broken over your own sin? Truly broken. Because your sin is what put Christ on the cross. It's what killed him. James is like, you should feel some weight to this. Verse 10. Keep yourselves prideful. No, right? (laughs) Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he'll just ignore you. No, he'll lift you up. He'll be with you. Do not speak evil of one another. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? This next verse, verse 13. James is about to like really attack one of the most challenging areas of you and I and me and us lives. Let's read. He says, come on, come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell. And you know what we'll do? We're going to make some money. We're going to make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow for what is your life It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills it, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, which God loves. No, all boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. How many of you are relentlessly connected to the happenings of your future? What am I going to do? Am I going to go to school? Am I going to get this job? Am I going to be with that person? Am I going to do this? Am I going to move there? Like It's something that totally consumes us. And essentially what James is shepherding us in is who is at the center of your plans? It's not bad to make plans, but are you living with an open hand and saying, well, I'm going to do this, but God, if you change things, cool, I totally trust you. Or are you living white-knuckled, assuming that you're actually in control? Keyword, assuming. And I know, let me just step out from this for a second. Like, I know that that is attacking. I know that there's a potential of you sitting there like, who are you to tell me what my life is and what my future is? 
I'm not. Like, I'm just reading God's word. Like, he is the one in control. I got nothing. I'm right there with you. I have made plans, and they have fallen, and it's kind of wrecked me. And God has taught me, oh, guys, it is so much better to attempt to humble yourself than for God to humble you. So I am with you in that tension that you feel. Now, looking back at this whole chapter, conflict, both internal, relational, all areas of it, they drive us to Jesus. But what happens is a beautiful thing inside of that drive towards Jesus. It doesn't end with just like this idea like, oh, me and Jesus, I'm, it's, conflict drove me to him. Like, thank you, Grace. We're just going to sit there and not do anything with it. Right? No. Like, uh, something more happens. It goes further. In fact, what it does is it pushes us back out. It pushes us back into potential conflict almost certain conflict. But you know what happens now? We're reshaped. We've gained a greater wisdom in the crossroads of conflict that is always gonna be there. Some of you are gonna have conflict tonight when you walk out of these doors. And Jesus is saying, there's something greater to be gained here. There is a wisdom, there's a Christ-likeness inside of this. You know what that is? It's an opportunity to show grace. Conflict is, at every step and every turn, an opportunity to show grace. To live in both gospel community and in the broken, sinful world, just like Jesus did. Do you understand that the entire trajectory of Jesus' life resulted in severe conflict? The whole trajectory of his life. In his divine effort to free us from sin, he endured the greatest conflict imaginable. He was rejected and scorned by man. He was even abandoned by God the Father as he suffered to death on the cross. He was driven to the greatest conflict, all to rescue us from our greatest conflict. To be eternally separated from God because of our sin. That is your greatest conflict. I know the drama in your life is real. But a hundred years from now, Will that conflict matter? What will your soul? You and I have a greatest conflict, and it's that we are broken and in need of Jesus. Now, for some of you, gaining clarity on the crossroads of conflict kind of should be side-issued for a moment because that's only just like a Band-Aid to terminal cancer. 
It's not actually fixing the true deep issue. You have not accepted Jesus. Let tonight be the night that you say yes. Let your soul finally rest. Let the real conflict be healed. Do you know that there's a huge difference between acknowledging and recognizing God versus submitting to him? In the New Testament, even the demons acknowledge Jesus. But do they submit? No. True submission is replacing who is the authority of the throne of your heart. And tonight, you need to do that if you have never done that. Say yes to Jesus. It's truly the only thing that you can gain wisdom in to live as Christ in any conflict. Now, if you are in Christ, buckle up. Because we are called to not move away. In fact, we're called to move toward need, toward pain, toward tension. We're called to look past any awkwardness or any difficulty to the promise of a greater joy. Think about it this way. If we, if you and I wake up tomorrow, do you know what should be? If we wake up tomorrow, everyone around us should get more Jesus because of us. And if we die tonight, we get more Jesus. And if we suffer and endure any level of conflict from now until we get more Jesus, it pales in comparison to the future glory that we will receive in him as co-heirs of Jesus. It pales, it falls. So, any conflict is a result to extend grace. When my son revolts against me at the refrigerator or when I take a toy away or do anything, it's an opportunity to extend grace. When my wife stands in front of me to this day and folds the towels wrong, I'm joking, it's, it's an opportunity to extend grace. When your coworker when your boss, when your parent, when your husband, when your wife, when your own self, your internal mind wages war and brings conflict to you, it's an opportunity to extend grace. When you sign up for Group Connect and join a group and you step into a gospel community, guess what? It's not gonna be perfect. There will be conflict that develops, it's an opportunity to extend grace. So the question is just simple. Where is the one area right now in your life that you need to extend grace to? You feel justified to own that conflict. Yeah, but they did me wrong. You did Jesus wrong. And he gave you grace. So it's an opportunity for us to turn it around and extend it right back out. It's only because of Jesus. He first did it that we're able to. Have you noticed that we don't sing songs about like other random names or 
I've met this awesome guy on staff named Colin. Like, we don't sing songs to Colin. We don't sing songs to Chad. We only sing songs to Jesus because he alone is the perfect one. He alone is the one to be worshiped. He alone, he did it first. So tonight, we're gonna continue to worship. We're gonna sing and we're gonna cry out to King Jesus. Let the next few moments of your life be an opportunity to receive his goodness. Let it evaluate who you are. Because when conflict comes, and it will come, you will now have greater wisdom, not to boast in, but to say, no, 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 it's only because of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I don't do this well. In fact, there's been several days and nights over the last couple months that I have failed at this miserably. And so I'm, I'm standing here preaching simply to myself, asking for your grace and your forgiveness in my life because I stink at dealing with conflict, especially when it's deeply personal. Lord, I don't know where everyone is tonight. Maybe there are people in here that have been hurt so bad by other people that for them to even begin to extend grace to them is something that they never could have dreamed of. Others, we have conflict in various ways. The thing that unites us is all of our need for you. So Jesus, may we turn our hearts and our attention to you and just declare you king. Amen.